Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm George Smith and I'm joined by our United writer and my esteemed colleague Rich Fay this Monday morning. Rich, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much, George. Uh, just a note to anyone who's who's watching the podcast. Of course, you can't watch it on YouTube and socials these days. I'm, I'm in a different room today. That's why I've got this rather garish uh, virtual background because the setup is just, it's just not right. Um, so every time I move... You can see there's like an outline of a chair behind me. So, yeah, I'll try to stay as still as possible. But uh, that's the explanation for why I've got such a bright red background today. Well, that's Rich's plan for the podcast, to keep as still as possible. But coming up on today's show, we're going to look back on Sunday's victory over Luton Town at Kenilworth Road, discuss the latest with Dan Ashworth's potential move to Old Trafford and look at the wider picture of the top four race. But first, we've got to start with that win at Luton on Sunday afternoon. United, another victory making it five on the bounce in all competitions, four in, in a row in the Premier League. Rasmus Hoyland at the double, his first ever Premier League brace. Eight goals in eight games now for him in all competitions. Rich, it started so well at Kenilworth Road on Sunday afternoon, two up inside seven minutes. Luton, though, hitting back pretty quickly. And from that moment onwards, it was a, a contest that ebbed and flowed, a very chaotic match, which probably favoured Luton rather than United. But at the end of the day, United got the points. It's four in a row in the league and they march on to the next one. It's really weird watching United at the moment, isn't it? Because they could score as many goals as they like and you still wouldn't say that they've had a convincing performance, really. It, it's a really... It, it sort of reminded me of the Newport game and, and the Wolves game, really, where United ha- were very comfortable, but they made it so hard for themselves by the end. And obviously, they did do enough in the end to, to get the three points. And it's quite a quirk, really, because part of me says this style of play just isn't sustainable, but they're sustaining it. So there's a bit of hypocrisy there. They always seem to just do enough. There's a bit of luck. You always sort of walk away from a United game saying they should have scored more, but they could have conceded more as well. I think they did deserve to beat Luton on Sunday. I think they had the better opportunities. You might look and say, look, Luton had some good chances themselves, but the opportunities United squandered in the second half were were really disappointing and they should have put the the game to bed. I think it just raises more questions really about what they're trying to do. The, the, The toughest questions come after a win sometimes because once you've lost, it's very easy to rip apart a sort of tactical blueprint and say, we've done this wrong, we need improvement here. After a win, it's sort of home truth sometimes because everyone's on a high, but... United need to take a step back and realise that if they keep performing like that, they probably will get caught out again sometime soon. So, you know, I think United just need to take a look of how they're going to control games better, really, because we've been saying for so long that when United have all their best players available, they're going to be fine again. They started with 10 of their best 11 against Luton on Sunday. Shaw obviously just wasn't match fit. I don't know why he was risked in the first place. He was torn apart by Ogbeni in the first half before he was brought off, uh, just before half-time. Midfield just looks a bit of a mess. I'm going to try and write a piece this week thinking of a, maybe an alternative midfield setup. But right now, United can't really point to the injury sort of situation as, a, as an excuse. So they need to have an improvement on the pitch. Of course, winning games helps you build that mentality, helps you build that identity as a team as well. They've got the confidence back. So I think you just got to take it as positive. So there's certainly reasons still to be concerned for United, but to be in the position they are now, I don't think anyone saw this coming a month or two ago. No, I agree. And it, it all extends, doesn't it, really, from that Cobby Maynou winner at Molyneux on what was the 1st of February. It felt like a pivotal moment in the season since then. United haven't looked back four league wins on the bounce. 
But I think the thing, obviously, that was particularly noticeable about Sunday was the clinicality of Rasmus Hoyland. First goal, pouncing on a Luton error, expert tenacity to get there, win the ball around the goalkeeper. Then the second one, on first viewing, it looked like a, a simple deflection from Garnacho's shot. But in reality, it was a really clever finish. And that man at the minute, he, he can do no wrong. It's 18-8 in all competitions, six in a row in the Premier League he's scored in now. And everything he touches turns to goals. And it's almost like now, even though it's taken a fair amount of time, United were right to shell out quite a big transfer fee for this player because he does look like he's got the potential to go to the top. He's got the pace, he's got the power, he's got the energy, and he's got the eye for a goal. So it's taken time, as as it was going to with a young player, but now it looks like the real deal. I agree with you on that. I still think he needs a lot of time going forward, though. I think that... You know, he, he looks excellent at the moment, but what happens if he goes another 10 games without a goal? What happens if he goes another 14 Premier League games without a goal? As quickly as form can go, it can disappear as well. And there will maybe come another spell even before the end of the season where he goes two or three without finding the back of the net. And that's when he needs the support. That's when he also needs, you know, to to be given more lenience, really. What what the last, like say, eight games or so now has done is, is given him credit in the bank because we know what he is capable of now. He's answered those critics. He can do it in the Premier League. You know, it, I think Gary Neville said on commentary yesterday, you know, if you can score in the Champions League, you can score in the Premier League. So he never really had any doubts about, about him finding the back of the net uh, for United in, in, in domestic competition. Now that he's done it, he's got credit in the bank. We know what he can do. We know the type of goals he can score. And I think just what will please Ten Hag the most is he's just scoring, I'm not going to say the simple goals, but the type of goals United just never used to score. We used to say, sort of last two, three seasons, if United had a centre forward, they'd be scoring so many more goals. They'd be getting these scrappy ones in the six-yard box. They'd have someone who's just at a focal point in attack. And Rasmus is doing that. He's reminding me of Ruud van Nistelrooy, really, the type of goals he's scoring. You look at the anticipation, reading of the game for that first one, that is, that's excellent centre-forward play. There's a little bit of luck, but you know, centre-forwards make their own luck by being in the right position. And if he hadn't have made that run, then that poor pass wouldn't have been punished. You look at the second goal, again, you know, improvised finish, okay, maybe maybe part of me still thinks that's quite lucky the way that it went in, but he stood in the right area to get any rebound, to get a scrap. And that is just what a good goal scorer does. You look at the goal against Newport, you look at the goal that he scored against Wolves, He's and the West Ham goal as well. He's just scoring these great goals from central areas. And that's what United just haven't had in recent years. So I think he's so exciting to watch now. Like you said, they have to stick with him. They have to persist with him. And looking ahead to the summer, we all know United need or United want at least one new forward. It depends on other areas of the squad as well. You know, you, you at least want a versatile forward, someone that can maybe play out wide and through the middle. But we're no longer saying buy another top striker anymore because you've got one. You just need someone to help ease that workload on him and, and give him a bit of a rest now and again. But Rasmus Hoyland looks the real deal and it is huge credit to him for staying positive, for keeping his, his attitude up when there's been so much scepticism about him. And it's a credit to Ten Hag and his coaching team for identifying that as, him as a talent because I think we were all very cautious of the fee being paid. Still can't say it's going to be justified just yet, but... He looks the real deal. He's got all those raw attributes. Now they just need to give him the time and the platform to to fulfil that potential. Yeah, I agree. And when you take into account now, he's up to 13 goals for the season and he's reached this tally quite quickly as a result of his recent run. And 
there is obviously potential now, like you said, his goal scoring his goal scoring run could stop as quick as it started. But now up to thirteen, he's got to be looking at maybe if I can end the season with twenty for for instance, nice round number. That would probably resemble a really big success in your first season in English football for a very young player. But away from Rasmus Hoyland, the other big plus point on Sunday once again was the performance of Kobe Mainu. Superb in the middle, gave United the the little bit of control that they did have it all extended from him. Ian Wright actually tweeted during the game that the more he watches him, he feels he's got to be in Gareth Southgate's England squad for the Euros in the summer. I think it's got to the point now, Rich, where a lot of young players are hyped up very, very early in their careers, a bit too quickly. But this young man, he, he looks the real deal, doesn't he? He's just a joy to watch and he just oozes class in every aspect of his game. It's yeah, it, it's very difficult to properly and fairly analyse a young player because like you said, they, they come through the academy system and there's such a reputation at United in particular. And then when they come into the first team, because they're homegrown and because they're exciting, the conversation around them is always very positive. So everything Manu does is amazing. Any shortfallings are often overlooked. But even with all that context, he is an exceptional talent. And during my time covering United, I don't remember a young player having as much about him as, as Kobe Mainu does, really. He he looks absolutely just made for senior football. It's not just the technical ability, it's the fact that he's got the physicality as well to to be a presence in the Premier League at such a young age. It's his reading of the game, his calmness, that composure. And it's the fact that you know, United still have, like we said now, United have, well, they started at the weekend, 10 of their best 11 players, their best 11 individual players. Kobe Mainu is now one of them, but he's also arguably the most composed of all them. We keep on speaking about these World Cup winners, the Champions League winners. Kobe Mainu is outshining them at his, at his age already. It is absolutely obscene the talent that this young player has. Again, you need to take a step back. You need to nurture him properly. In terms of international involvement, for some players that's worked wonderfully at a young age. For others, it's been a bit detrimental. I think United will be very keen for him just to you know, still slowly be eased into proceedings, not get too much hype, not get distracted by off-the-field matters. Just focus on your football. Take every game as it comes. There'll be a new big contract for him this year. That's that's a certainty, probably, again, at the end of the season. So there's not a distraction right now. And yeah, United just need to really be careful with his development because he's got everything. But again, as we said with Hoyland, it's potential. And it's only that word potential. You've still got to fulfil it. There's been very... There's a very long list, sorry, of, of false dawns of young players who have looked really good when they've broken onto the scene and they've just sort of wilted away and you've never heard of them. I do think Maynou is, is better than most that we've we've ever seen in the Premier League. But, you know, there still is that that concern about development. I think what's most interesting from the weekend for me is that when Casemiro went off, United actually looked better in midfield. They had a bit more control, really. And Casemiro has been, he's really regressed this season. We all know how good he is and he can really do a job in certain games. But he's starting to look a, more and more sort of like Nemanja Matic, where there's games you've got to pick and choose him. And he breaks up play, gets yellow cards. But long term, United midfield, for me, has Casemiro, uh, has Casemiro on the bench and Kobe Maynou starting in the deeper role. And then it opens up so many possibilities in midfield about who else could, could play alongside him. So, yeah, Kobe Maynou looks a real deal. You don't want to get too carried away, but it's so hard not to right now. Yeah, he is on another level for me. There was one point in the second half on Sunday, I think maybe 60, 75 minutes in, in that period of the game, in the middle of the second half, where he just picked the ball up 
middle middle of the Luton half and just glided about 20 or 30 yards forward. He just made it look so easy, so simple. And you watch him and you just think, there is no end to this young man's talents. He's just a joy to watch. And that is exactly what he is. He is a joy to watch. Really exciting young player. And like you said, he's got to be nurtured. It's got to be a slow progression. But it is hard not to get excited about him, to be fair. You mentioned there quite rightly about some young players when they make the step up to international football, it doesn't quite work out. And I think there's probably a fair place to put that in Alejandro Garnacho's case. He's had a couple of Argentina call-ups, not really done anything as of yet, not been given much game time in fairness to him. But he was another player that throughout this season has got better as the season's progressed. But on Sunday, again, it was just that clinicality one-on-one that let him down a big, big chance in the second half that came his way, which he should have scored, should have wrapped the game up and made it a lot more comfortable for United. So I think Fergon Acho, as talented as he is, as quality as he is, and he's looked a lot better on that right-hand side, he's still going to improve on his finishing touch, hasn't he? Because realistically, he should have been burying that chance in the second half on Sunday afternoon. I think with Garnacho, he's a very high-variable player in that he maybe does, he started having that level of consistency this season. But there'll be some games where he's a 9 out of 10, a 10 out of 10. Other games where he's maybe a 3 or 4 out of 10 and things just don't go his way. And that's just part of being a youngster. That's no criticism of him. That is just the nature, not only of, of being a young player, but particularly being a, a young winger as well. Someone who, you know, every game is completely different for him because he's up against different fullbacks. Some games he needs to go outside, some games he needs to go inside. The overall sort of makeup of the team as well. United just need that consistency. Garnacho has been their most consistent forward all season. So I think almost every for every poor performance he's had, he's had a very good performance as well. That's, again, what I said in terms of sort of his variables at the moment. What United would probably rather have is just a winger who's a 7 out of 10 every single week. But when you've got that, you maybe don't have the match-winning brilliance that Garnacho has brought either. So there's always going to be a trade-off. And you look at United's history... It's a club laden throughout the years of players like him who can just make things out of nothing. They've got that excitement, the bums off seats. He should have been given the number seven shirt last summer. Again, maybe that's part of his own development, not too much too soon. I think long term, he should be managing his number seven, maybe even the number 11, which could come available this summer, sort of a Ryan Giggs-esque flanker. He's just got that bit about him that flair he's got the tenacity he works hard that's what United fans will love the most that's what his coaches will love the most is that he tracks back and plays with his heart on his sleeve he's a young player again we can't expect it to be the finished article he has achieved so much in such a short space of time it's less than two years ago that I was watching him in the FA Youth Cup and he was the star for them him and Mainu guided them to, to that trophy and it's crazy that two years later they are arguably you know, the two most important players at this moment in time. So again, we've gone that show. It's just a product, a byproduct really of, of his young age. He's not perfect yet. He's still got a lot of work to do. I think he will get better as the, the years go ahead. And again, for him, it's a case of keeping him level-headed, making sure that he doesn't maybe get too much of an ego because part of the brilliance of Garnacho is he has that self-assurance a little bit cocky you know maybe a little bit arrogant at times opposition fans will absolutely hate him you know that's just what he does that's what you want from your winger you want them to be hated by your opponents because it shows they're doing something right and Garnacho has that about him he's very hard working he still seems to be quite down to earth and focused on the football you know I need to make sure it stays that way and that he doesn't 
maybe have too much too soon either. I think it helps him that, you know, he still has some games where he drops poor performances and games where he is brought back down to earth. And that's just the the cutthroat nature of, of top flight football. And that's what he needs, really. He needs to realise that, look, you've been brilliant for most of the season, but if you're not brilliant for two games, you lose your place. And I think that is that will be testament to Ten Hag's management, really. Yeah, definitely. And let's be fair, in, in terms of the wide positions, he was expected in the main to be to be Marcus Rashford's backup this season, really, on the left-hand side. But obviously, he's dislodged Anthony on the right. And he, he's looked far better in that position. But yeah, he wasn't at his very, very best at Luton. But like you said, he's a young player. He's going to have fits and spurts and it's going to happen. So there's certainly a lot of potential there. There's no doubt about it. But as we continue to just look on individual performances from this game, one player that didn't quite bring his A-game to Kenilworth Road was Bruno Fernandes. You've done a piece on it this morning, Rich, and you've looked at the way he was pretty wasteful in possession on, on Sunday afternoon. And I noticed in the first half, there was one particular point when United were on the break, Alejandro Ganacho was making a really smart, intelligent run on the right-hand side and Fernandes had got the option just to slip it through the ball along the turf through to him. And he almost tried to hook his foot around it and it almost went out of play. Ganacho had to scamper to the byline to keep it in. And then there was that point in the in the second half where Fernandes had got five or six options within passing range and decided to shoot and obviously went horribly wrong. So yeah, players are entitled to an off day, but Bruno Fernandes on, on Sunday, was he was certainly off the pace for his usual high standards, wasn't he? He he was. I, I think I want to at least caveat the beginning of this that he's been one of the most consistent performers of the Ten Hag era, Bruno Fernandes. The the long-term concern and the underlying sort of elephant in the room really with, with Fernandes is that he is a bit of a contrast to what Ten Hag wants. We keep on saying that United are a team who don't keep the ball enough, who are, aren't smart enough in possession. Game management isn't always there. And Fernandez is kind of the embodiment of that. He often goes for high risk, high reward passes. He often goes for goal when there's better options on. And sometimes you sense in the game that if it gets to 80 minutes and Bruno's not scored or got an assist, he will overlook better options so that he can get a goal contribution. And that was evidence uh, at Luton that Kenilworth rode on on Sunday. Like I said, there will be a piece live by the time you're listening to this where I've looked at the moment that that just made me want to pull my hair out, really. Um, because 93rd minute, United get a corner. Liverpool, Arsenal or City, they'd probably just keep the ball in the corner flag, try to get a few more corners, just absolutely kill the game off. United take it short. Bruno Fernandes gets the ball from a very tight angle. I've worked, I've worked out it. He had seven options. He could have passed to... I'm going to try reel these off on top of my head, by the way, so this could, this could end horribly. Um, but he had... To his right, he had Mainu and Amrabat from the corner. He could have played short to. On the edge of the box, he had Dallow and Garnacho, both unmarked on the edge of the box he could have passed to. He had Rashford making an underlapping run to his left, and he had Scott McTominay in the six-yard box, who would have been a good target for a cross if he did want to go for a high-risk approach. He then also had the option of taking the ball back to the to the byline to run the clock down, to just kill time, bit of game management. So he had seven options. He chose the eighth one, which wasn't even there. He had a shot goal. It was weak at the near post. Kaminsky saves it. Luton counter-attack. And 58 seconds after Fernandes needlessly shot, Ross Barkley hits the crossbar with a header. And... If United had dropped points yesterday, there would have been a lot of contributing factors to that. But it would have stemmed from Bruno Fernandes taking the shot when he just really didn't need to. And it's not just 
poor decision making it's poor decision making from your captain this is the guy who's meant to embody your entire style of play he's meant to be out there giving the orders of Ten Hag he's meant to be executing that game plan and it was just really poor game management I just don't know why he did it and you know you might say well if it went in the top corner you wouldn't be saying this you wouldn't be having this conversation well of course not because that maybe that is part of Bruno Fernandes his sort of enigma he can mask shortcomings with goals and brilliance and we've seen that so often throughout his time at United I still think he is a very important part of this United team he adds he's just got that stardust he's just got that quality he's a talisman and it's just about finessing him still at the age of 29 you wonder how much he's going to change maybe the formation needs to change a bit because Bruno Fernandes for me has been maybe at his best for United in a deeper midfield role under Ten Hag I remember last season he had some games where he sat back in sort of central midfield and he was just pulling the strings and I am going to write a piece about this this week so don't steal this idea George because I'm writing this but basically I do think that long term United's midfield could look Maynard and Fernandez in the deeper roles and someone else maybe a Mason Mount maybe someone else further up the field I think that there's a compelling argument for that to be midfield in some games going forward it's easier said than done. Obviously, it wouldn't suit every opposition, but I think that Bruno Fernandes has a lot to offer to this United team. It's maybe just about giving him a bit more defensive responsibility so that he's less inclined to go for goal all the time. Yeah, I do recall the times actually he did play in that sort of deep line number eight role last season. It did suit him. Well, I can't remember the specific games it was, but he, he did look good in that position. And you mentioned there about him, Maynard, and then maybe a new number 10 or Mason Mount in that role. And I suppose when in games that United are certainly favourites to win, perhaps at home, it's one that Eric Ten Hag could go with. Might be a little bit too attack-minded maybe in games against maybe the likes of City, Liverpool or whatever. Because obviously Maynard, he does seem to be more of a progressive player, even though he's demonstrated he can play as a number six. But I think it's certainly got some substance to that because Bruno Fernandes did look good in that deeper role. But finally, Rich, the, the headline act from Sunday's game, it was it was an unfortunate one. It was the exit of Luke Shaw just before half time. As you mentioned at the top of the show, he, he was past fit before the game after going off at Villa seven days earlier. And it did feel as though he was going to start. Eric Ten Hag said, speaking to the media on Thursday, that it was a doubt, but he was going to try and leave it as long as possible to give him a chance of playing. And ultimately now, if the injuries do turn out to be the same, which is quite possible, we, we don't know at this point what the specifics of the injury are, it's potentially a gamble that's backfired for Eric Ten Hag. But at the same time, of course, he is very, very light on covering the fullback positions. We've seen instances where Diogo Dallo's played at left back this season and last season as well. But obviously, Aaron Wambasaka's missing as well. So ultimately, at the moment... Aaron Wamba, uh, Diogo Dallo, I should say, is United's only fit and available fullback. United, you did a piece on it last week. They let Alvaro Fernandez go out on loan. They terminated Sergio Reguilón's loan from Tottenham. This could be a big problem if Luke Shaw's out injured, especially with Lissandro Martinez missing as well, because those two are so key in the build-up play on that left-hand side for United with their progressive play. Yeah, um, the other thing that, that Ten Hag said was, was pre-match. And he said, if Luke Shaw's fit, he has to play. He's a very important player. He is irreplaceable, what he brings to this United side. You know, on this day, he's arguably the best left back in the Premier League still. Uh, I, I mentioned on last week's podcast, and I did a piece on it, that for club and country, since he joined United almost 10 years ago, for club and country combined, he's been available for just now over 50% of all matches. Obviously, he had that horrific double leg fracture, which is 
a huge contributing factor to why his percentage is so low. I think I said last week that well, he, was, he, was, he was available for 88% of United matches last season, but he missed nine for England, which took him down to 78% overall. And that was the highest percentage of availability he's had since he joined United for, for club and country combined. Uh, and you do have to wonder, number one, you've got to wonder, was he really fit enough to be playing this game? Luke Shaw will have wanted to play. Ten Hag will have wanted him to play. Does it come down to the manager, the club, doctors, to Luke Shaw to actually say, look, I'm not fully fit. I'm not going to be risked because there's, there's repercussions further down the line. We've seen it. I remember it being sort of a an issue, I think, during all the goal and socials time at the club as well, that players are being rushed back when they just weren't quite fully match fit and you've just got you can't be taking any chances because now you know did you really need Luke Short looting away it certainly helps but Lindelof could have played that Amrabat Johnny Evans perhaps who was brilliant from the bench there might have been a way around it so you know it's very easy to say now and to criticise the decision don't think anyone's criticising it when the team news dropped but it's it's not aged well and the other factor for Luke Shaw is he's left footed you know he he brings so much to the team Ten Hag loves having left footed specialists in defence because it opens up new passing avenues gives United better build up play and there's another contributing factor as well he, Luke Shaw was almost the unsung hero last season because he was a key cog in why Marcus Rashford was so good because Rashford always had Luke Shaw making underlaps or overlaps on, on the left wing, which dragged defenders out of, out of position, created the space for Rashford to cut inside onto his dominant right foot. And part of the reason Marcus Rashford has struggled this season is because Luke Shaw has been unavailable for so much of it. So he is a huge blow. United will hope to have him back as, as soon as possible. But maybe it does raise the question long term of do they need a better cover I don't want to write off Tyrell Molassia too soon he's a very popular member of the dressing room he's got a good attitude but is he really good enough you know if Ineosa coming in want to raise the standards is Tyrell Molassia who's been injured and missed the, the entirety of the season really good enough to to deputise for Luke Shaw when he's not there we've seen glimpses but they're very different players so I think it just raises the question really of United's lack of replacements for their specialists for Martinez and Shaw you just do not have another proper left foot defender and it really affects the way they play yeah definitely well speaking of Ineos and wanting to raise standards we're going to discuss that and the United's pursuit of Dan Ashworth in part two of this episode of the Manchester is Red podcast do rejoin us then after the break Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. As I said a few moments ago, we are now going to discuss Ineos, Sir Jim Ratcliffe and the club's pursuit of Dan Ashworth from Newcastle United. And we'll start with Dan Ashworth because he's been a heavy talking point in the past seven days or so with a lot of developments in the last 24 hours. There's been widespread reports in the national media that he has been placed on gardening leave by Newcastle United in a ploy to potentially join Manchester United Rich, we know that Dan Ashworth wants the move. Sir Jim Ratcliffe wants him at Old Trafford as quickly as he can get him. However, this position where he's been placed on, reportedly been placed on gardening leave, means that apparently if United want him now, they're going to have to stump up a £20 million fee or wait until 2026, which is obviously another couple of years away, to bring him in. It's a very unusual situation, certainly for United, bearing in mind that the, the sporting structure has been a complete a complete mismatch for, for years and years at Old Trafford. 
It's a difficult one to gauge because obviously we're in an age where footballers cost big fees, but do those that pull the strings at the top of the club command them as well? It's a it's a complex issue, this, but if United want to get this sporting structure right, which Sir Jim Ratcliffe evidently does, and he's made great moves to try and achieve that very quickly, do United stump up the money? It's a, it's a hard one to make a call on, isn't it? There's a really fine balancing act to, to this one because on the one hand, the best people in the industry like that are worth waiting for because he would tick every box for United. He would fit with everything any else want to do. The caveat of that is, can they afford to wait? Because if United go into this summer without Dan Ashworth, that is a big part of their puzzle missing. That is a huge component of their new structure missing. They can't do the work that they want to do. They can't make the change that they want to do without him in position. And if you go into another summer window without someone like Ashworth appointed, you run the risk of wasting or squandering another 100, 150 million pound in, in transfer fees. If you don't have someone there to, to, to maybe stop you buying another Anthony, to stop you buying another Jaden Sancho, then you can do real long-term damage and really undermine all the work that, that you're trying to do. United want to, to shake up the club. They want to have these footballing figures. They want to have the best in class. Ashworth is that. For me, he's worth paying for immediately. Newcastle feel well within their right to demand a fee over £10 million. You know, it could be as high as £20 million. Who knows? They could even drive a harder bargain and say, actually, we want a bit more than that. So you've got to look at it two ways. Ashworth would effectively be, I think in terms of FFP, his compensation fee would would be taken into account for all those figures. So he would effectively be treated like an actual footballing signing. And... Well, look at some of the fees that I've played in recent years. I mean, tw- twenty million pounds for Dan Ashworth is it really that bad? If if he can unlock the true potential of the club, from my personal opinion, I think it is just worth paying. But as we've said, I think on previous podcasts, you need this is the summer where United need to re-establish their reputation. Really, this is the summer where United need to prove that they have really changed. And if they're being held to ransom by Newcastle United, maybe that undermines everything that Ineos are trying to do. So Ashworth wants United. United want Ashworth. I do think United will get their man. I think they will find a way to get him earlier than Newcastle would like to let go of him. If it comes down just to money, I think he's worth paying for. Just to get him in place, you can move on then. You can properly start planning you can take full advantage of this summer, which is going to be a seismic one for United with Barada joining already with, you know, the the possible on-field and off-field changes. So United obviously don't want to be taken advantage of by Newcastle, but it is imperative that they get someone like Ashworth in as soon as possible. This is the thing, isn't it? It's a very, very fine balancing act. £20 million obviously is an extortionate amount of money. It's a hell of a lot of money. But when you look in comparison to what United have shelled out for players in recent years, you mentioned Anthony Jadon Sancho there, for example. It could be money well spent in the long-term running of the football club in the way that they're going to evolve, hopefully, these next few years and, and correct the transfer mistakes of yesteryear. I think I'm with you in the sense that United, if they're serious about this, they just need to stump up the money and get it done. It, it does feel like a lot of money in the sense that you're not gaining a footballer for all this. But ultimately, like you said, he's been come in, going to hopefully come in and transform the, the structure of the club and work closely with Omar Barada at the top table, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, Sir David Brailsford. 
it could be money well spent in the long run. So it is a very, very fine balancing act. But ultimately, whether United do get Dan Ashworth or not, I think there's a general feeling that it will happen one day, whether it's this year, two years' time, who knows. But you certainly can't fault the the ambition of Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos. And I think a lot of supporters who were who were initially doubtful of the fact that he was only getting a 25% stake have, have certainly been impressed with the way that he's mapped out his ambition quite quickly and just how quickly he wants to get things moving. Absolutely. Again, you know, it was very easy to be sceptical of Ratcliffe when he came to the club. It's very easy to say, oh, he's the local lad from Failsworth. Well, you know, he owns a petrochemical company. He's, he's, he's not a corner shop down the road. You know, he he, he isn't just this little local lad who, who supported United his whole life. You know, he tried to buy Chelsea. Um, you've, got, you've got to look at that as an elephant in the room as well. But he's done everything right so far, really. And, you know, there was also scepticism about the fact that he was working alongside the Glazers rather than replacing them outright. You know, a lot of United fans are still passionate about full sale only. And maybe the long-term plan will still be for Ratcliffe to have total control over Manchester United, but he's not joining with that total control. Obviously, he's got what he wants on the footballing side of things and maybe there's a synergy here that can can work because for all their faults United have made a lot of money under the Glazers they are commercial behemoth and if they can have that sort of growth and success on the footballing side as well then maybe both sides of the business can can work hand in hand of course it was so easy and it is so easy in football to make these promises you look at every single managerial appointment every single takeover at every single step across every single division in world football every manager says we want to start winning we want to play attractive football we want to bring through young players and every owner says we want to be successful we want to be the best team in the world again we want promotions we want trophies but to actually deliver upon that is something completely different and it's so much easier said than done so far United look like they are really sticking to those words they are really trying to make something happen they're trying to shake everything up and of course you know the bar wasn't very high from the Glazers and what they've overseen they've just allowed the club to stagnate to to get rotten really they've not had the maybe I'm not even gonna say being brave enough to appoint externally it's just cheaper and easier for them just to give it to people they know to give Woodward the job to give Arnold the job now United actually have external eyes coming in and properly having an audit of what's going on, giving a, a harsh structural review really of, of the flaws at United. And it's just been long overdue. So part of me thinks, look, they didn't have much of a standard to, to be anyway coming into the club, but they certainly have exceeded a lot of expectations. If they get Ashworth, that is just another giant tick in their box really, because like we said, it's so far easier said than done to, to actually do this. And the capture of Barada, the capture, the potential capture of Ashworth, that is that is seismic. It is. And it does feel like the club is acting like an elite level football club again in the in the same way we've seen Manchester City get everything right off the pitch and on the pitch in recent years. But another name that we've not mentioned in this segment is, of course, Jason Wilcox. He's another man that's been linked with coming in to Old Trafford, another one with Manchester City connections, of course. He was their academy director at the Etihad. He's currently at Southampton as their, as their director of football. And it just goes to show, again, the Glazers, they want the top people, the best in class for these positions. And again, ultimately, it shows their ambitions to get these people in. I think as well, I think the big factor for me is the fact that Sir Jim Ratcliffe only received regulatory approval from the Premier League and the FA last week. 
it would have been very easy for perhaps for him to have just held off a little bit until that came through. But it's quite clear that he and the Ineos, Ineos team have been at it from the start in identifying the men that they want to rebuild the structure of the club. And Wilcox, again, yes, doesn't quite maybe sound as fancy coming from Southampton as it would maybe Omar Barada coming from Manchester City. But of course, he's worked at City. He's worked at a big, massive club and been very successful as well. So if you can assemble a team of Barada, Ashworth and Wilcox and no doubt one or two others along the way, it sets sets your core group up to build the football club around and hopefully work close with Eric Ten Hag, who I think, to be fair, coming up to his 100th game in charge in a few weeks, has fully deserved this sort of team around him. Yes, there's been bumps in the road in Ten Hag's tenure, but overall, bearing in mind what's gone on behind the scenes, he's done a pretty successful job so far. Yeah, certainly. And uh, for, I think the, the ultimate defence for Ten Hag will always be that He's had a couple, like maybe one hand tied behind his back. He's not had the luxury of of working under a proper football structure. There's still a few question marks about how much power he will have. And I know his previous quotes he's had at Ajax saying that he wants to have total control over transfers and he wants to have the final say and he wants to have input. He seems to have suggested in recent quotes, you know, that he has had input and he's been consulted on a lot of the changes that are happening at the club. But as part of this new structure, he's just got to focus on the football, really. You're getting the, the, the transfer brains, you're getting the recruitment brains involved for them to stick at what they're special at. And Ten Hag needs to stick at what he's a specialist at, and that is managing a, a football team, that is training the players day to day, that's setting his team up to, to win at the weekend, making those big calls in terms of personnel and, and in-game changes. So I think there'll be a bit of adaptation for Ten Hag. He might have a slightly new role. He might lose a bit of power in terms of the way that the transfers are executed. He can maybe put names forward, but they might not be the game the names that United then go go and sign. You know, he United effectively need a transfer board where Ten Hag says, I need a new left need a new left centre back who can give us proper cover for Martinez go get me one and they bring him a list and you know he might say this is the one I'd like the most but ultimately there's the list that they're gonna have to choose from if those players aren't available they move on they have a proper structure in place they have ultimatums and they just have a bit of authority again in the transfer window so that's what needs to happen and like we said I think Ten Hag does deserve a lot of credit because he's not had the luxury of that there's been so much change off the pitch since he arrived at the club, he's never really known who his boss was going to be. He didn't really know who was going to be owning the club long term. So he deserves a lot of credit for that. And we talk about whether Ineos has given United a lift or not. I don't think that their arrival's really given United as much of a, of a change on the pitch because, as we said, the run's been good, but the performances have still been a bit lacking in recent weeks. But what Ten Hag has done is he's given himself sort of the perfect re-audition for his own role. There's no reason right now that... Ineos would come in and say we need to change the manager because United look like they've got to get top four football again so fair play to Ten Hag for having this revival at the right time to coincide with the the arrival of, of new owners in the club and yeah like I said I think everything's pointing towards a very very bright future for United but ultimately it is always easier said than done yeah definitely and you mentioned there that top four push we're going to look at that shortly in the in the next part of the show, but we'll just before we move on to that, Rich, just very quickly, we've got a James Weir podcast coming out next week featuring the former United midfielder. You were part of that. Do you just want to tell everybody a little bit about that and what's coming out next week with that one? 
Yeah, it was a really interesting chat. Myself and Tyrone had James in the podcast studio in person last week. We spoke about his time at United, making his debut in that game where Rashford scored twice against Arsenal. There was why he left the club under Jose Mourinho. There was his time in English football with a a variety of clubs, the injury chaos. And there was also tales of playing during COVID, having to drive to Europe from Preston get the ferry across, being in lockdown, he's playing in, was it Bud- um, Hungary? And he played in Slovakia. And yeah, it's a really interesting podcast, really insightful. And like we said, you can get all of that on the Manchester Red podcast. Like you said, I think next week that'll be released fully. Um, it's it's still up in the air, the exact date of when that's going to go, but stick with us on our socials. It's a really interesting chat. And hopefully there'll be more chats like that in the future as well. Yeah, it sounds good. We'll look forward to seeing that. But do rejoin us in part three where myself and Rich are going to have a look at the intensive top four battle. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. As I mentioned just before the break, myself and Rich are now going to look at the landscape of the top four race, which is really hotting up at the moment. Just five points separating Aston Villa in fourth and United in sixth, Tottenham Hotspur sandwich between the pair of them. Rich, a mixed bag of results over the weekend for for the three of them. United obviously win at Luton, Villa beat Fulham 2-1, and Spurs beaten at home by Wolves losing 2-1. The gap was six points heading into the weekend. United have trimmed it slightly, you're moving it to five. They've all played an equal amount of games. It looks as though it could go right down to the wire, but United at the minute, they're the ones with the, the energy and the thrust, and the ones that are obviously banging form. Yeah, I, I, it's reached a stage now where I, I would be staggered if United didn't finish in the top four, no mind the, t- the top five. I just think they've got the momentum. They've got a lot of key players back, even with the current injury situation. They've just got the squad depth that the other teams don't have. If, if Villa lose a key player, I just don't think they can deal with it in the same way that United can. Same for Tottenham, really, who are, you know, again, Tottenham under a very popular manager who's got the, a lot of the media on side. Everything they do seems to be positive. You don't really talk about the negatives of them. Whereas Man United, everything they do is just failure, failure, failure. So they're very easy to, it's very easy to get sort of sort of sucked into that that cycle, isn't it? Where some teams, all, lots of the coverage is just positive. And then with other teams, it's just always negative. And I feel like United are always... Whatever United do, it's always, yeah, but they should be doing better. Whenever Tottenham sort of do something, it seems to always be, they're doing so good, aren't they? They're playing lovely football. They're not winning anything. They're not getting top four, but Andrew's nice. He says mate a lot. So I just feel that United need a bit more... You know, they, they have, they've had a very bad season. And you can't overlook their shortcomings and the abject failure at times. They've had dreadful results. They've had dreadful, humiliating performances. But right now, they're in the ascendancy. And for all their flaws, the teams above them still haven't really punished them for it. Villa played Tottenham, I think, the same weekend United played City. So, you know, that's a bit of a free hit for United. It comes at the perfect time, that one. You look at the other games coming up and what will please United fans the most is... It's so easy to sort of list five or six fixtures on paper and say, win that, win that, we'll win that one, might draw that one, but we'll win that. United are making these routine matches routine. They're making going to Luton, 
easy and we know that's not easy but they're, they're, they're winning there they're beating West Ham at home they are just getting that confidence getting that momentum and that's been what's that's, that's what's been missing all season it's that familiarity it is that those patterns it's that confidence and I just think United are, are certainties now for the top four really I really do just because the way that the, the season's going the fact that United have that confidence they're getting better they'll argue they've already gone through their rough patch and they're now doing better Villa, Tottenham and United will all probably have devastating defeats by before the end of the season. But I still think there's going to be one game where everything clicks United and they win 4 or 5 nil. I still think that is going to happen. It could have happened yesterday if they'd kept their foot on the gas, if they hadn't got too complacent, if they'd just gone for the jugular. So, you know, I, I think United are well-placed for, for Champions League football now. Well, I think if you look at United's upcoming crop of games and, and Gary Neville made a good point speaking pre-match on, on Sunday afternoon before the win at Luton where he said if you look at United's next two, Luton and then Fulham at home, Fulham game this coming Saturday at Old Trafford, they are two games United realistically should be taking six points from. They've got half of that number already and you would think Fulham at home, they should be winning that one. Fulham not being great this season and then beyond that, obviously they've got the Manchester derby, the other side of the Forest Cup game. Then they've got Everton at home. That's another game United should be looking at winning. Then they've got Sheffield United at home, which as a caveat should be mentioned that that game could be called off if United progress in the FA Cup because it's the same weekend as the quarterfinal. So that game could be pushed back a little bit further. And then they've got Brentford away over Easter before a couple of tough ones to start April with Chelsea and Liverpool back to back. So it certainly feels like United have got a mixed bag in the coming weeks, but the likes of Everton, Fulham, potentially Sheffield United at home in the next three or four weeks, they're the games that United really do need to take charge of. And like you said, maybe there's an opportunity within those crop of games there for everything to click and have a bit of a goal splurge and win four or five nil. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's going to be a game where United just turn it on really and and make their quality known. It's just about everything clicking into place there. It's just, yeah, there's so many variables and so much mitigation yet and you know Villa and Tottenham fans would love for me to be proven wrong and I just can't see it happening right now like I said I think United have coped relatively well with the injuries they've suffered of course it's going to be difficult to see how the defence shapes up without Shaw and Martinez for for the foreseeable future but what's happening now is United are just scoring scoring goals for fun and you'd back them to score in every single game and you know ultimately for all the the flaws in United, they don't control games well, they, they leak goals. But if you outscore your opponents, they get glossed over. And United just have a front three who look confident at the moment, who look like they can make things out of nothing. They've then got that extra firepower from midfield as well. You've got McTominay and Fernandez who are both constant goal threats. So yeah, I just think that even if United aren't perfect and even if they still have these unconvincing performances, they will just find a way to win because it's happened so often now that there is a real belief within the club that even if they go into stoppage time drawing or behind, they think they're going to get their chance again. And they do keep fighting towards the end. We saw that at Wolves. Yes, they've almost been punished in so many of these games. But as we said at the top of the podcast, it's happened so many times now that while you say it might be unsustainable, they're sustaining it. So what would make you argue otherwise? That I still think there might be one, maybe even two, really humbling a humbling defeat for United they could get thrashed by City they could get thrashed by by someone else you know before the end of the season but I think that on the all they will just find a way to to do it really I think they'll have the consistency that the other two teams don't manage 
Yeah, and I think the home form is going to be key as well, isn't it? That's a big factor. It was so strong last season and it, it did peter out certainly in the first half of this season. But just lastly, Rich, obviously achieving a top four finish based on where United have had to come from would resemble a, a successful season, even though at the start of the campaign they would have had much higher aspirations. Throwing a potential victory in the FA Cup, winning that, that, that would be really pleasing. But do you think in a way in the fact that United obviously have had to come from so far behind in the top four race and it's never anything that we wanted to happen or Eric Ten Hag would have wanted to happen, in the way the league campaign was mapping out, was it perhaps a good thing that their Champions League campaign ended so early? Nobody wanted that, obviously. But in the grand scheme of things, and obviously we don't know how that may have mapped out, doubtful they would have gone on and won the Champions League, but it's just allowed them to concentrate on the lead that little bit more and potentially rebuilding for another Champions League campaign next year to just go a little bit further, a bit stronger and more well-equipped. Yeah. Look, I mean, there's always the... There is always this quirk of the Champions League that so many teams, you, know, you value it highly because it gets you the riches. It's very prestigious to be in the tournament. But then part of you thinks, why are you fighting so hard to qualify for a competition you're going to crash out of in the group stages anyway? United were never going to win it this season. Maybe a quarterfinal at best if they've got a, a fortuitous sort of last 16 round, you know, quarterfinals would have been fine. But like you said, that then could have affected their, their hopes of getting back into the Champions League next season, which will be worth a lot more as part of this new Swiss model. More games, more money for United, you know, ticks a lot of boxes. So next season's the, you know, from a United point of view, would you rather... Get to the quarterfinals in the Champions League one season, but not qualify for it the next season. Or do you rather crash out in the Champions League one season, but still qualify for it the next year? They'd always take option two because, you know, that is money, money, money. It's easier to attract players if you're in the Champions League. It shows that you've at least had that little bit of stability in, in the league, at least. And yeah, it's 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 all very impossible, very hard to say what might have happened as United stayed in the Champions League. But I do think that being out of it has given them that focus. I still don't think you can classify it as a successful season if they finish fourth um, because you just turn it to Arsene Wenger's Arsenal then if, if that becomes the new barometer of success. If they win the FA Cup, it is because, you know, that is a more prestigious tournament than the League Cup. And, you know, it's a, a tournament that United really haven't won enough times in the last 20 years. They should have won a lot more FA Cups than, than they have done in that, in that period of time. So you've got to look at the mitigation, you've got to look at the circumstance. There's been so much on and off the field change. United really have been, they've had rotten luck with injuries. It's It's been a convenient excuse a lot of the time, the injury situation, but it has contributed to the lack of consistency and identity that has underpinned their struggles this campaign. I think if they finish fourth and don't win a trophy, it's not a successful season. Finish fourth and win the FA Cup, I think you can say it is one. Right now, that United just need to get Champions League boxed off as early as possible and see what happens with the FA Cup because they've got an, another favourable draw. There's not many massive teams left in it, but they'd still be, what, third or fourth favourites to go on and, and lift that trophy. And, you know, Cup success rides on a lot more than than just, you know, being the best team. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, how it plays out. But for me, I still think United can salvage their season, certainly. Yeah, there's certainly scope for that to be achieved. Obviously, reached the FA Cup final last season, as well as winning the League Cup, of course, and narrowly missed out to City in the final at Wembley. So I think that does wrap up today's episode of the Manchester is Red podcast. A big thank you to Rich for joining me. 
this Monday morning to reflect on that win at Luton and a whole host of other topics. If you did enjoy this podcast, please make sure to leave us a review on your preferred podcast provider. And of course, watch us as well on YouTube. You can leave a like and comment as well there. So we'll catch you again in the next one later this week. But for now, take care and have a very good week. 